Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, calls our attention to Luke chapter 20, where Jesus faces a cunning test from the theologians and religious leaders of Jerusalem. Listen and discover from the example of Christ how we can be as wise as a serpent but harmless as a dove in the political and theological debates of the 21st century. Let's suppose you had only one week to live in your life, okay? You knew for sure that you had one week to live. Who would you want to be with? What would you like to do? What would you cram in to that special week? We're going to begin studying the life of our Lord Jesus as it rapidly moves toward the tremendous crisis. In one week of time, last week we began that week as we studied the triumphal entry. It began like the victory march after winning the final game of the football season and the crowd carries you off the field, rotting their shoulders. We began at the triumphal entry with a crowd yelling, Hallelujah! Praise to Yahweh! Hallelujah to His King! Peace be in the heavens and glory in the highest. In other words, tremendous praise to the Lord Jesus. We're going to end this week, we're going to end this week with the most astounding miracle that ever took place, the biggest cause of celebration that could ever happen, and that's the power and the reality of the resurrection. But in between, in between we need to have a tremendously intense conflict that we've already talked about a little bit when we talked about the religious opposition to Jesus. But that opposition is going to intensify. We're going to have some religious leaders come with murder in their hearts and a tremendous conflict is going to take place between Jesus the Messiah and the Jewish leaders. We're also going to have the Lord Jesus spending intimate time with people like us, followers of Christ, disciples that have chosen to believe in Him. Then we're going to have that opposition flash and Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and we'll go through that time as he prays in the garden and does his intense struggle with his father and then we'll go through the crucifixion and then culminate in the resurrection. But today we want to begin walking through that week. We've just finished with Jesus coming down the road from Bethany, down over the Mount of Olives, up into the temple complex and the crowds are yelling praise to Yahweh. He went home for a day and probably back to Bethany and spent some time probably with Lazarus and with Martha and Mary, his special friends in that area of Jerusalem. He comes back the next day into the temple complex, casts out those that are money changers in the temple again, which he had done at the very beginning of his ministry about three years earlier. And when he casts these money changers out, the Jewish leaders once again raise the issue, a very important issue that we discussed in the past. Who gives you this kind of authority? And so we turn to Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, we have three tests. None of us like tests, but we're going to get a found insight into the sharpness of our Messiah as we look at, first of all, in Luke chapter 20, 1 through 8, a question of the Lord's authority. It says, one day... As he was teaching the people in the temple courts. You want to envision not a church building like this, but like an open courtyard. So you want to picture Jesus in this open courtyard, and he goes from place to place walking through that open courtyard, and people are listening to him teach. Now as he's doing that, 
And as he's proclaiming the gospel, the good news that he is the Messiah, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, now those three groups would represent the power structure of religious Judaism in Jerusalem. Now these chief priests and teachers of the law and elders come to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Now, if somebody came into our church and suddenly started dumping chairs over and took the offering plate and threw it all over the floor, I think that probably some of our elders would go and say, who gives you this kind of authority? So don't be too hard on the Jewish leaders because that's what they're doing and it's why they're doing it. Only Jesus, unlike a stranger that came in here and did that kind of thing, Jesus had already given them many authenticating credentials to prove who he wants. But this was a continual thorn in their side. Who gives you this kind of authority? Now, it's a question you need to ask yourself. And we've been raising that issue. One of the things I want to do is to get us by the travesty of viewing Jesus just as a religious figure. I think the greatest danger in our culture here is that most people know the story of Jesus and they basically accept the facts but it's all part of the culture instead of being a living reality. And so it's kind of like, yeah, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4, 5 plus 5 equals 10, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, let's go and have a good time. A little bit of that. And that's not going to cut it with the name and the reality of Jesus. You need to ask yourself about the unbelievable questions. Who is Jesus? What do I really believe about him? Who do I genuinely think that he is? That's the questions that the Jewish leaders are raising. They're saying, we think you're a blasphemer. We think you're insane. We think you have a demon. By what authority do you contradict our judgment of who you are? And that's a question you need to ask yourself. How do you know that Jesus isn't just some religious charlatan that put a bathrobe on and wrapped a towel around his head and started walking through the streets of Jerusalem kind of like hundreds of people do on the streets of San Francisco every day? I guarantee you, you can go to San Francisco today and you could get hooked up probably walking through the city, find somebody who claims to be the next Messiah. It's guaranteed. And they'll probably make a lot of money doing so. How do you know that Jesus isn't that kind of a charlatan thief? How do you know that? That's the question of authority. By what authority do you claim to be the Messiah? So the Jewish leaders come to him and ask him point blank. How do we know that you're telling us the truth? Prove it. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus replied in verse 3, I will also ask you a question. One of the good ways to meet opposition one of the good ways to handle a hostile audience is to give them a counter-question, which is what Jesus does. He says, tell me, John's baptism, you can almost see Jesus looking down, you know, John's baptism, tell me, was it from heaven or was it from men? Now, about three years before John the Baptist had appeared on the scene down near Jericho in the wilderness by the Dead Sea, he started telling the entire Jewish nation, you all need to repent. You need to admit that you're sinners. You need to cry out to God for forgiveness and you need to get ready for the Messiah. And one day Jesus came out 
into the public eye and came to John's baptism, and John pointed him out and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John was the announcer. He was the herald of the Messiah. So Jesus' question was not just a counter-question. It went to the heart of what John the Baptist proclaimed. If John the Baptist was from heaven, then Jesus was who? Tell me. If John the Baptist was, was from heaven, a messenger, a prophet that told the truth from heaven, then Jesus was the Messiah. If John is just of this earth, if John was not a true prophet, then Jesus was not the Messiah. It's very clear. And the issues are very strong and very black and white. And that's what Jesus is wrestling with these Jewish leaders about. Now, after they're asked this question, they kind of get in a huddle. You know, I'm not sure that they did this, but it, you can almost picture it like a football team. They all get together, put their arms around one another, and they're... And the text tells us what they were talking about. I can hear one of the lawyers say, hey, you know, we're in a pickle, guys. We thought we were going to get the Lord Jesus in trouble. We've gotten ourselves in a big trouble. Do you see that big 250-pound Jewish fella over there that's been lifting weights for the last 30 years? He loves John the Baptist. And he believes with all of his heart that John the Baptist is from heaven. Now, I don't know about you guys, the consensus of opinion among us as sophisticated Jewish lawyers is that John the Baptist was just some fly, you know, some flea-bitten prophet that really isn't a true prophet, just some hoax out there. But that's not the dominant opinion among this crowd that's gathered together around Jesus of Nazareth. So I don't know about you guys, but I think we ought to pass on this one. Now that's what's going on. That's what the text says. Look, you need to read your Bibles like that. It'll make it come alive for you. They discuss it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will ask us, why didn't you believe in him? If he's from heaven, then why didn't you submit to him his baptism? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered him, what do you do when you're on the horns of a dilemma? You say, I don't know. So they answer, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, I want to share with you, brothers and sisters, you need to think very deeply because Jesus doesn't tell these Pharisees. He doesn't bring a lightning bolt from heaven. He doesn't reach out and touch one of their arms and paralyze it for a minute and then touch it again and make it whole. In other words, Jesus with those that are his enemies that repeatedly reject the claims of Jesus, Jesus doesn't help them very much. And that's very important. You see, one of the things that we struggle with as human beings is we argue with God. Like, God, talk to me just once. Well, God has talked a lot more than once with people down through the centuries. But human pride and rebellion is always saying there's not enough evidence. There's not enough proof. Now I want to go right to the heart of the matter. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah today, and if I don't believe that, 
And if we don't accept that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's not because there's not enough evidence. It's because our heart, deep inside, is filled with pride and is hardened to all the evidence that there could be. And these religious leaders illustrate that kind of a heart stance. These religious leaders saw a man raised from the dead named Lazarus. They saw blind people see. These people examined a blind man that was born blind, that suddenly can see. See, his own testimony repeatedly said, I don't know who he is, but I know I was blind and now I can see. And the only thing I can come up with is someone that can, has that kind of power must be from God. These Jewish leaders actually conducted person-to-person, eyewitness kind of, of, of interviews with people like that. Did they believe? No. And neither will you. Neither will you. The only way you believe is if you open your heart. You've got you to get down on your knees inside. You've got to humble yourself. And what this text is saying to me, when I have times of doubt, and I say, well, maybe the whole thing is untrue. You say, Dave, what do you do when you start to have those thoughts? What do you do when you start to have those kinds of questions? What do you do when a question supposedly comes up that it seems like maybe it does contradict the Bible and maybe this whole Christianity thing isn't true? What do you do? What I do is I ask myself questions like this. Dave, I conduct an internal conversation. Dave? As you read the account about John the Baptist wearing skins down in the wilderness, living on locusts and wild honey, tell me something, Dave. Do you think that John the Baptist told the truth? Do you think he was a man of truth? You know, as you evaluate people in your own life, in counseling and looking at political figures, looking at authority figures in our own day, tell me, what do you think about John? You think John told the truth? As I open my heart to the biblical accounts, one of the things that I would be willing to go to the stake for is that I think John the Baptist told the truth. I think he told the truth. And the choice is, if you can't say, well, he kind of told the truth, he was kind of a good guy, but in some areas he really didn't tell the truth, and the, the area about Jesus being the Messiah, that was just something that he came up with, and it really wasn't true. Well, if that's the case... Throw John the Baptist out. Because saying that Jesus was the Lamb of God wasn't just something that John the Baptist came up with once in a while. It was the heartbeat of his whole ministry. That's what he came to earth to do. From God sent and anointed him as a prophet to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. So if he's wrong about that, he's wrong about everything. And personally, it's incredible for me to think that as I read the accounts of John, and I encourage you to do it, just open the account and say, God, if you're there, and if you're true, I want to open my heart to truth. And I want to evaluate, is this man a man of truth? And so I come up with the answer to Jesus' question, was John the Baptist from heaven? I say yes. He was a prophet in the line with Moses, with Isaiah, with Micah, with Malachi, John the Baptist. And I build my life in that. I'm just sharing you. That's the core of my being. I answer Jesus' question, I believe he was from heaven. As I do that, I find that I have relationship with God by faith. That's what faith is about. It's that commitment. 
And I grow strong in my obedience to Him as the Spirit builds on that faith. And that's what Jesus was challenging these people to do. And the Jewish leader says, no. We want to hang on to things the way they are. We want to maintain our power and prestige within the community. We like the money that we have. We don't want to bow to you as the Messiah. We don't like where you would take us. We don't like what we would have to give up. So we reject you. They did not do that because there wasn't enough evidence. They did it because of the moral pride and hardness of their hearts. But they didn't quit. Jesus went on to tell a parable of the talents. We're going to skip because today we want to look at the three tests that Jesus faced. We want to go on to test number two. It's over just a few pages on, in verse 20. Just flip the page, Luke 20, verse 20. Now, religious leaders have to be careful about political questions. I feel it a little bit. You know, political things come up from time to time in Midlothian. And uh, you always wonder the pastor teaching what to do with those things. Because you want to be able to minister to people. You want to be able to get the things that are really important. And you're very concerned not to block some of those things that are really important by what some of your views might be on some more peripheral issues that are very important but not nearly as important as life and death. Taxes is one of those issues. Paying taxes can be a political hardball. Now, in our church family, I remember years and years ago, and it might still be true, it's one of the political hardballs that you could really get going was your view of unions. I had one guy at breakfast. Every time we had a breakfast, he'd bring up unions because he loved to see people fight. <laughs> and half the table would be on one side and half the table on the other side. It was the same arguments every time. Now, that's exactly what these religious leaders want to do with Jesus. The hot potato, the hot potato in the circles of the Lord was not what the cement companies did with waste fuel. The hot potato in the Lord's day was should we pay taxes to Caesar? And so they come to the Lord. And this is, this is a burning hot potato because there is a whole party in Judaism of the first century that have arms. They're collecting machine guns, you might say, to get ready to conquer the, the, the Roman army over this very issue. I mean, it's hot. So look what they ask. They come to the Lord. Keeping a close watch, they send spies who pretended to be honest. I love that. Isn't that great? Coming kind of tongue-in-cheek. The Jewish leaders send some spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So these hypocritical spies questioned him. You can learn a lot about human nature by reading the Bible. You'll learn everything you need to know, but this is tremendously insightful. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Beware of someone who comes on to you a little bit too mushy. It's really good you came to church today if you want to learn how to move and influence people. You don't do it by intimidation. If you are a boss and you bark at people and you yell at people and you scream at people, you will get them to move fast but you will not get them to move very long. 
The way you get people to do what you want them to do is you take on a real humble pose and you, you appeal to their ego. So in other words, if you want to sell something to your pastor, you come to your pastor and you say, I've never heard a teacher like, don't say something like, you know, the other day, Dave, that was a good message today, but I want to tell you something. The other day I went and I heard something on the radio and you should have heard that. I mean, that preacher can really preach. That doesn't go really well. I mean, that's, you know, that just doesn't stroke pastor's egos very well. To be honest with you, I'm thrilled to death. Listen to Charles Stanley and Swindoll and John MacArthur. I think in these days we need all the help we can get. And I love those guys, and they've been a great example. So you listen to them. But I want to share with you the way our human nature works. But if you want to get inside of me, you come to and say, Dave, I've never heard someone speak like that. In fact, if you really want to put it on thick, say, Dave, you know, one of the major characteristics I get when you teach is, I really feel I'm in tune with your heart. I really feel there's integrity there. I feel that you really tell me what's deep inside, and it's really moving me. The next statement you make, you're on progressive, accepting ground. Watch out for that. Watch out for that. There is true sincerity. Good preachers are made by the body of Christ. They're given gifts by God, but as the years go by, the Spirit of God uses God's family, God's families to generate strong, competent, biblical preachers by the expression of encouragement and love that God's family gives. We can have a body of love and encouragement, or just like that, we can have a body that becomes discouraging and, in fact, slaying. But these hypocrites use what is a precious gift in the body of Christ, praise and encouragement and love. They use it as a hook to try to trap the Lord Jesus. Now, if you thought the Bible wasn't realistic and honest about the way people are, the most powerful hook there is is a hook of love. If a mom says to her daughter, if you loved me, I knew you didn't love me. If you loved me, you would have done it. That hook. You can manipulate very powerfully with that. And that's what this group's trying to do with Jesus. They butter him up and say, oh, we love you. We've never heard a teacher that's like you. The major characteristic is we know that you're a man of integrity. You will tell us the truth. And about that time, I would have been kind of drooling and, oh, well, uh, well, uh, well, uh, you know, it'd be like a speech after a flowery introduction. You get up there and go, well, who was that they introduced? Jesus, look how he responds. This is what I love about our Christ. He cuts through all of that gobbledygook and gets right at the truth. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Now, about this time, they didn't have to reach very far because a denarius was a common coin. I'm going to take out a penny today to get you the idea. He says, all right, take out one of the denarius. So one of them reaches into his robe and digs down and pulls out a denarius. It wasn't copper, it was silver. Okay? He says to them, now that they got the denarius out, and Jesus is showing to the crowd, whose portrait and inscription is on it? And one of the guys hollers out from the crowd, Tiberius' head is on it. I'm sure he didn't say it like that. You know, he said, Tiberius is on it. And the Lord says, flip it over. What's on the other side? Levi's on the other side. The, the mother of Tiberius, the queen of Augustus. She's on the other side. Jesus says, okay, read to me the inscription. And on one side it had this, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the deified Augustus. Let me read that again. 
On the side that had the head of Tiberius, it read like this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the deified Augustus. On the other side was Levi, and she was represented as the goddess Pax, the goddess of peace. And there was this inscription, Potiphix Maximus, the high priest, high priestess of Rome. Now, if you read that coin, what would you conclude about the culture of Rome? That it was devoted to the true Lord God of Israel and of the Old Testament? How many would vote for that? What are you dealing with here? You're dealing with a pagan, secular state. Now, that's the problem the Jews had. The zealots said, how can we as God's children ever have anything to do with this pagan, godless society? And that's where they're going to get the Lord. Because if the Lord says, pay your taxes. See, they had to take these denarii and they had to take them and pay them to Caesar. What they want to do is to get the Lord to say, yeah, you need to pay taxes. And if he does, he loses all the zealots in the group. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, which is what they thought he would say, then they had him. Because they could just hit the knob on their cassette player, take it to, to, uh, to Pilate, and say, Pilate, guess what? There is a Galilean prophet running around the Passover temple complex in the midst of this celebration with thousands of zealots running all over the place, and he's claiming and fueling the crowd and saying that you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Now, what's Jesus going to do? Now, that is a tougher dilemma. That is a tough one. Now, Jesus says this. He asks him this question. He says this. He said, whose inscription is on that coin? And they have the coin up and they look at it and it says, Caesar Tiberius is on the coin. He says, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The coin belongs to Caesar. It has his head on it. But he went on and said something very significant. He said, give to God what belongs to God. I'll never forget doing a conference with Dr. Ryrie as he held up a denarius before about a thousand kids. He said this, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, which sets up Romans 13 and Acts where the apostles were subservient to the government, but they also obeyed God rather than men. It sets up the whole biblical doctrine of that we need to pay our income taxes, we need to be good citizens, we need to be involved in our culture, we need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But Jesus went on to say something very incredible, and he wants to say it to all of you. It has a lot to do with whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus said, give to God what belongs to God. You say, Dave, what in the world is that all about? Whose inscription is on the denarii? Caesar's. Everyone tell me. Whose inscription is on the denarii? Caesar's. Who does it belong to? Who is stamped? Who is stamped with a representation of God? Caesar's one. His mother was stamped with the inscription of God. Who else is stamped with the inscription of God? Where do you find the stamp the inscription of God on this earth. Give to Caesar. The coin 
The denarii, a day's work, give it to Caesar. It's got his head on it. Give to God what has the inscription of God on it. Genesis chapter 1 says, Let us make man in the image of God. In the image of God, let us make them male and female. What is it that we give to God? Where do we find what belongs to God? What Jesus is saying to all of us is the image of God is stamped on us. We're not the coin, but we are the living, vital object lesson. A living, breathing, thinking, feeling, deciding being who has the image of God stamped on every fiber of their being. And Jesus was saying to these Pharisees, the tragedy of all of your lives is you're quibbling over whether or not to pay taxes. When the much bigger question is, why won't you take yourself stamped with the image of God and give it to God? You give to Caesar what belongs to him. You, by an act of creation, and by an act of recreation, because Christ has died on the cross for our sins, you need to give yourself to God. What does that say to us today? I think that some of you, and I think it's very possible I could, I could tell you that. And I can go out, and I cannot give to God what is due Him. I can get all caught up in trying to prove to people that I love them by how much I've spent. I can try to cover up my guilt. I can say, well, man alive, I've been working hour after hour trying to get a book finished and I haven't spent enough time with the kids. So what I'll do is I'll get them a great big Christmas present and that'll make up for it. No, it won't. The only thing that will make up to it is, is to go and be inside of them and say, kids, we are in a crash schedule and this is not the norm and we will make up for it. There will be time. And to be sure to follow through with integrity that there is time to be made up. To say, Mary, we are on a crash schedule. And it is kind of a pressure time. We will make up for it. And to follow through. All the presence in the world can't make up for that. Can't make up for myself. Can't make up for time. And Jesus says, Dave, who really is? Who really is your owner? Who do you really live for? And that's what Jesus was saying to these Jewish leaders. And the tragedy of their lives, the tragedy of their lives is they rejected the image of God in themselves and chose to stamp themselves with the image of themselves. You see, the issue in our relationship with God always boils down to who's the authority, who's the control, who really has my life. When I go through long periods, there are going to be tremendous temptations to get very depressed for some of us, to get all covered over with all the hassle of it and for it all to be ruined. Who do we talk about those emotions with? Do we say, Lord, my body belongs to you. My body is stamped with your image. I want to give it to you. I want you to use my personality. I want you to use my body to celebrate and to praise and to be like the crowd that celebrated the triumphal entry. I want to praise you. 
And though my emotions might not feel like that inside, I don't belong to myself. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. You know, I think that's a decision that I make and that you make. It's a decision. Will I give to God what belongs to God? You know, yesterday I talked to a good friend, a girl that grew up in our church, and I just want to share with you because it really moved me yesterday. And I'll close with this because it really has to do with this image of God in us and who we live for and who we give. There was a, a girl in our church that grew up, spent a lot of her years here. And she made good enough on her SAT to get a presidential scholarship, which means that you can go to any university in the country free of charge. In fact, the universities open their arms. They come to us. This student chose to go to Baylor University because they wanted to major in medicine. They went down there and the open arms of Baylor were very well taken because this student was able to maintain over a 3-9 average. That's pretty good. Good enough to get into medical school, in Galveston Medical School. She met her husband. He was about a year ahead of her at Baylor and they joined one another in medicine. Now, this is the ideal American thing. I mean, you talk about prestige. I guarantee you, a young couple that's married that goes to a dinner party anywhere in Dallas and says, they say, what do you do? And the man responds, I'm a third-year medical student. Well, what do you do, honey? I'm a second-year medical student. Oh, you are. Well, good. That's really great. That's amazing. Man, what are you all planning to do? What are you going to do your residency in? What are your plans? We're talking big bucks here. After doing second year, two years of medical school, this young couple was expecting a lot more than just graduating from school. They were expecting a child. About two months before that child was born, really about four months before that child was born, the wife was reading in Philippians. The verse goes something like this. Don't live your life for vain conceit. The NIV translates it. Don't live your life for empty ambition or foolish ambition, but live your life for others. And the Holy Spirit, deep in this person's heart, started just talking about that. And that precious mother-to-be started thinking, why do I really want to go into medicine for? And words like prestige, words like power, words like money, couldn't be shaken. She told me that. She said, I just couldn't shake ambition, recognition, money, And the Lord slowly started to talk to me, and I had to decide, what are you going to live for? And yesterday afternoon, that young wife who now has two kids, little boy, and a beautiful little girl with flaming red hair, that mother said, with that baby in my womb, I decided, this schedule of trying to juggle labs, tests, medical books, diapers, bottles, night feedings, she said, I realized I just didn't have any time. I didn't have time for the things that from the time I was just a little kid really meant a lot to me. The little things, like reading my Bible and being able to pray. And I just decided that when I evaluated my life and I stood before the Lord, 
that what I wanted to be able to say is not that I made a lot of money and not that I had prestige, but that I had followed the whole incredible, mind-boggling idea which cuts right across our entire culture that says live not for now, but live for them. So she's dropped out of medical school and went home and took care of her babies. Now there's nothing wrong with going to medical school and other people can make other choices. What I want to underline in your thinking today is how short, how short their home. The Bible's not telling us you can't have all kinds of careers. It's not telling you can't work. But what it is saying that whatever we do, whatever we choose, we're to choose not to go for the power, for the prestige, for the ambition. We're to go for giving ourselves to God because we're stamped with His image. And for others, because that's what our Father is like. Unlike the Jewish leaders, let's live for others. Let's live for our kids. And what I want to say to every housewife in the world, the Lord is not telling women they can't have great careers. If you think of the whole flow of life, maybe there's 20 years to raise kids. What do you do with the next 40 in a modern medical society where there's a lot of time? The Scripture is not teaching there won't be Lydia's that are gifted in business. It's not teaching there won't be Deborah's that are gifted in political advice. It's not saying that there's not going to be those kind of women. But what it is saying is let's not ever demean the choice of self-sacrifice because of love. Because that's the essence of what the Scripture is saying. Whose image are you stamped with? You're stamped with the image of God. Who are you giving your life to? Who are you giving your life to?